Chapter 7 of Niels Klim's Journey Under the Ground. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 7 The Patuan Constitution. In the kingdom of Patu, the crown is inherited, as with us, by the eldest son of the king, whose power is absolute. The government, however, is rather fatherly than tyrannical. Justice is not meted and bounded by law alone, but is the result of principle, a principle of the widest philosophic comprehension. Thus monarchy and liberty are closely united, which otherwise would be inimical to each other. The ruler seeks to maintain, as far as possible, an equality among his subjects. Honors are not limited to any class, but the poorer and more ignorant are called upon to receive their opinions from, and submit to, the decisions of, the richer and more intelligent. The young are to respect the aged. The annals of Patu show that some centuries ago, certain classes were highly favored by the laws to the exclusion of the great body of the people. Frequent disturbances had been the result of this favoritism, till a citizen of the town Kiba proposed an alteration in the laws by which all distinctions of class were abolished, and while the office of king should still remain hereditary, all the other officers of government should be subject to the will of the people, all of whom should be allowed to vote who could read and write at least their names. According to the custom of the subterraneans in such affairs, this intelligent and patriotic citizen was led to the marketplace with a rope about his neck. His proposition was considered and after grave deliberation was adopted as conducive to the general interest. The mover was then carried in triumph through the city, honored by the grateful shouts of the people. He, who has the most numerous offspring, is regarded as the most deserving citizen. He is honored above all others without exception. Such men are looked upon as heroes, and their memory is sainted by posterity. They only receive the name, which on earth is awarded to the disturbers and enemies of the race, the name of great. It is very easy to conceive of the degree in which Alexander and Julius Caesar would be prized by this people, both of whom not only had no children themselves, but murdered millions of the offspring of others. I remember to have read the following inscription on the tomb of a Keban peasant. Here lies Jorktan the Great, the hero of his time, father of thirty children. Among the court officers, the Kadori, or Grand Chamberlain, is the superior. Next after him comes the Smizian, or Treasurer. In my time, the seven-branched widow, Gahanya, filled the latter place. She was a virtuous and industrious woman. Although her duties were many and important, she nursed her child herself. I remarked once that I thought this to be troublesome and unfit for so great a lady. I was replied to in this wise. For what purpose has nature given breasts to woman? For the ornament of the body alone, or for the nourishment of their children? The crown prince was a child of six years. His governor was the wisest tree in the kingdom. I have seen an abstract of moral philosophy and policy written by him for the use of the prince, the title of which is Mahalda Libal Helet, which in the subterranean language means the country's rudder. It contains many fundamental and useful precepts, of which I recollect the following. First, neither blame nor praise should be too hastily credited. Judgment should be deferred 
until accurate knowledge of the matter is obtained. Second, when a tree is accused of any crime, and the accusation is supported, then the life of the culprit must be examined, his good and evil actions must be compared, and judgment be given according to the preponderance of either. Third, the king must be accurately acquainted with the opinions of his subjects, and must strive to give union among them. Fourth, punishment is not less necessary than reward. The former restrains evil, the latter promotes good. Fifth, sound reason teaches that a special regard should be had to the fitness of candidates to public offices. But though piety and honesty go to form the greatest merit, yet as the appearance of these virtues is often imposed on us for the reality, no tree should be severely judged till he gets into office, when he will show himself what he is. Sixth, to make a treasurer of a poor man or a bankrupt is to make a hungry wolf purveyor of the kitchen. The case of a rich miser is still stronger. The bankrupt or the penniless may set bounds to their peculation. The miser never has enough. Seventh, when the prevalence of vice renders a reformation necessary, great care and deliberation must be used. To banish at once and in mass old and rooted faults would be like prescribing laxative and restringent medicines at the same time to an invalid. Eighth, they who boldly promise everything and take upon themselves many duties are either fools who know not their own powers or the importance of affairs, or are mean and unjust citizens who regard their own and not their country's welfare. End of chapter 7